Good morning, church. Y'all look different from up here, but still just as good as you did in the warehouse. Even better, actually. Um, we're going to be in Luke 10. We're going to be in Luke 10 this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. All right. I don't know whose pen that was, but okay. It's good to see you guys this morning. Um, so today we're going to be talking a lot about neighbors. Now I know for some of you that's already a trigger word. Um, being born and raised in New York City, you just had so many traumatic events run through your head just at the mention of the word neighbors. Um, but for those of you that uh, know me, you know I'm, I wasn't actually born or raised in New York City. Uh, I was in times of my life growing up in, in rural Texas, so neighbor actually had a very different meaning and connotation for me. There were, were times that um, my family and I, we lived out in like literally the middle of nowhere. Like I'm talking like pastures, cows, sheep, no, no sheep. Um, and um, like I would never see my neighbors. Now I know many of you that sounds like heaven, um, but it was like an interesting experience. Like you knew your neighbors existed um, because you would see them in their pickup trucks, like going down some dirt road. And the only thing you ever really knew of them was, was what their left arm looked like um, because they would stick it out the window and just do this. So you would just see like a left arm kind of just floating down the road. And that's, that's what you knew about um, your neighbor. Now juxtapose that with, with New York City where many of us know way too much about our neighbors than we ever planned on knowing. I think about um, Caitlin and I's building that we live in. We live in a, an apartment building in, in Bay Ridge, and our building it could be like a cast of sitcom characters. Like, we, we constantly, like, think about this. Like, we've, like, probably at this point written at least five different episodes. Like, we could pitch a first season of, like, a Netflix special uh, called David and Caitlin's Building. And, I mean, we've got, we've got everything. Like, every character that you can imagine. We've got um, the cat lady on the first floor. Um, like, she's got these conspiracy theories that the landlord is out to get us, and she knows because he's poisoned the boiler and her cats react to it, um, you know, and uh, we've got um, a guy that's, like, LGBT, and then we've got um, our downstairs neighbor who is, like, a Vietnam veteran and deaf, and the only reason we know that is because he lives right under us, and we're always dropping stuff and furniture and moving things, and he has yet to ever complain, right? Um, we've got this amazing Guatemalan woman on the third floor that makes the best pernil that you would ever eat. Um, that's my mother-in-law, in case you're wondering. Um, and we've got, I know, I've got to get the brownie points. doesn't matter how long you're married, you still need them, um, especially if you want the pernil. Um, and so we've got everything. We've got our next-door neighbor. Um, this is like a bit of a left turn, but um, he's been slowly dying of, of a very aggressive cancer for like the last five years. Like there is the full spectrum of like life and death happening in our building. Um, and so there's literally like chances to minister like every single day, even if you're not looking for them. And this all happens because we have neighbors and this all, and we have neighbors for no other reason than the fact that we live in New York City. So for better or for worse, we have neighbors. Um, and so this sermon that we're going to be looking at or or the piece of scripture that we're going to be looking at together is about neighbors. And it's, it's a parable that many of us are familiar with. Like it's one of the first ones that we, uh, if you grew up in church, you probably learned it as a kid. It's the parable of the good Samaritan and it happens in uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. So we're gonna read it together and then we're gonna pray and then we're gonna talk about it. So 
Uh, remember, this is Jesus, uh, and he is now on the road to Jerusalem. So the transfiguration had happened. He had come down off the mountain, and he has set his face towards Jerusalem, where he knows that he's eventually going to be crucified and die. And so on his way to Jerusalem, we know he's probably stopping off in multiple towns and taking time uh, to teach. And so this is one of those situations where he has stopped and he has started to teach. And this is what happens in verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Uh, so, so likewise with a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed and came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He, he went to him and bound, him up, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay, when, I will pay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He, meaning the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the challenge, even this moment, Lord, to, to reflect on our hearts, Lord, who are our neighbors. Lord, we pray that you would speak through your word, God, that you would help your people to understand more of of who you are, what you've called us to, and how you're advancing the kingdom of God among us, Lord, both in New York City and beyond. Um, so we love you, Father. Would you meet with us in this time? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I've got, honestly, probably like the easiest passage of scripture that we've seen in months to preach on, um, because literally like Jesus is already preaching a sermon. Um, so I could either get up here and try to like preach another sermon on top of Jesus, or I could just help us like look more at Jesus's sermon, uh, which is what I'm going to do. So we're kind of going to just go through this passage and we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at the passage kind of chronologically. So there's three different stages that I kind of wanted to talk about. We're going to talk about the question, the question that was asked to Jesus. We're going to talk about the story, the story that Jesus told, uh, and we're going to talk about the answer, okay? So uh, the story starts with a lawyer. Now, when we say lawyer, I know many of us probably think of a guy in a suit with a briefcase, uh, but this is a different type of lawyer entirely. This is uh, a Jewish lawyer uh, in the time of Jesus, which would have been somebody who was just really acquainted with uh, the scriptures, uh, who knew the Old Testament law really well. So he was like an expert of religious law, so to speak, so not like a you know, he's not trying to, like, get people money from car accidents and that kind of thing, okay? Uh, is my mic going in and out? Yeah. yeah, okay. Let's see if we can find another one. Is this one good? All right. Awesome. All right, hopefully that's better. I was like, man, I sound like I'm beatboxing, but I know I'm not. I know I'm not. It's not what I do. It's not my calling. <laughs> Um, so this lawyer stood up, and uh, he's going to ask a question. He's going to ask two questions, and both of his questions are going to have two very different reasons. So the first question he asks is, as he asks this question to test Jesus, and this is his question. He says, uh, he says, teacher, what must I do? 
to inherit eternal life? Like this is like the same question that all of us ask at some point in our life is, is what must I do um, to be right with God? What must I do to go to heaven? Um, but it says he's not asking this from a place of genuine curiosity. It says he's asking it to test Jesus. So why is he testing Jesus? Well, you saw the very first question, or the very first word in the question is he says, teacher. Okay, so at this point, Jesus was known as a rabbi or a Jewish teacher. He'd been going around teaching, and at first, that's not an uncommon thing. There were many rabbis at the time, many people who would teach, but Jesus was starting to teach in a way that was really starting to ruffle other people's feathers, right? Like he would have some good messages about loving God, but then all of a sudden, he, would, he was including the poor, and he was including the downcast in ways that were really just not... Um, setting people right. Like every now and then he would say things that would just shake and jostle people. And, and he began to make people uncomfortable. And so uh, it's at this point where people are starting to try to figure out like, are there ways that we can actually point out Jesus? Because that's the thing. He wasn't necessarily uh, heretical. He wasn't going against God's teaching, but he was applying it in a way that was making people really uncomfortable, especially those that were already in power religiously. And so the, uh, the other religious people were trying to find ways of, can we corner Jesus and make him out to be bad guy that so the people will turn against him because at this point the people have been really loving Jesus so he asked this question to try to test Jesus to see if Jesus can answer it in a way where they could trap him uh, and turn the people against him and they're also he's testing him to try to see is this guy as good as our priests is he as good as our lawyers is he as good as our scribes um, and basically what this guy is asking is is Jesus actually one of us right and so we, we've done this before too. Like if you think about some of your conversations, there's many times we use questions to try to figure out if the person we're talking to is gonna align with us and we can find some things to agree about, right? Like uh, we do this with sports really easy. It's like, uh, you know, did you, uh, did, you, did you catch that game last night? And what you're really trying to figure out is, is this person happy like you're happy because your team won? Or are they sad because their team lost? And if they're happy like you're happy, then you've got a new thing to connect about and you can celebrate and you can, and you can track that topic. And so in many ways, this, is, this lawyer is doing something similar. He's asking Jesus this question to suss him out. Like, whose side are you really on? I mean, we know you've been uh, trying to uphold the poor a lot. And we know you've been applying scripture in these weird ways, but you know, you've, you've really gotta be on our side, right? Uh, but Jesus perceives this, right? Jesus perceives that there's something deeper going on with this man's question. And so he doesn't just answer the question, right? What does he do? He starts a conversation by asking another question. So he answers the question with a question. And if I'm being honest, like personally, that's something I could learn from. Like I'm one of the first where if somebody asks me a question, like I'm quick to want to give you my, my two cents about what I think on a matter. Uh, but Jesus does something really interesting, which is he answers the question by asking another question. And I've, I've only known a handful of other people that are actually good at doing what Jesus does here. It's one of those things I always want to be good at. Like I want to be better at like asking questions to try to get people to explain themselves more. Um, but I've only really ever seen like really good conversationalists and really loving people do it well. Um, and so that's what Jesus does. He answers this man's question with another question. What does he ask? He asks it in, in verse 26. He says, uh, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And so the man answers, and, and what he does in, in this man's answer is he merges two uh, verses of scripture. He, ver he merges Deuteronomy 6, 5 uh, and Leviticus 19 through 18. So these are two laws in the Old Testament. And so when this man answers Jesus's question, he pulls from those two passages. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your, with all your mind. And so that's from Deuteronomy 6, 5. Uh, and then he adds Leviticus 19, 18, 
which says, and your neighbor as yourself. So he's saying, what's the most important law? What do you have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what do you think it is? And he says, it's these two verses from the Old Testament. And Jesus' answer is really anticlimactic, right? He almost says nothing. He just says, go do that and you will live. And there's something that really, that's really interesting that happens in that moment. See, this man, uh, he's gonna respond with another question, but you see when Jesus says, go do this and you will live, the man immediately has to apply that verse to his own life. And so you see that there's this, there's this shift that's gonna happen in that man who asked the first question. All right, at first he's testing Jesus and he's trying to pigeonhole him. And Jesus says, go do that and you will live. And the man's gonna change from testing Jesus to actually examining his own heart. And we see this in the next question that he answers. So remember, he asks two questions for two reasons. The first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's asking that to test Jesus. The second question is in, um, is in verse 29. And he says, but desiring to justify himself, he asked, and who is my neighbor? So the second question he asks, who is my neighbor? And he does this to justify himself. So have you ever wondered, like, why is he trying to justify himself, right? Like, he could have heard that verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, and just said, yep, you know, I think I'm going to go and try to do that the best I can. But instead, he decides to justify himself. Well, why is that? I wonder if maybe it's because he already knows that he doesn't keep that law perfectly. Jesus responded with the law, right? Love God, love your neighbor. And as soon as that man is confronted with two things that seem very, very simple, he suddenly realizes, oh no, I haven't done that. And so he immediately needs to justify himself. He needs Jesus to give some more details so that he can make sure that actually he's doing okay. And I think it's easy for us to like kind of judge that man and be like, Jesus really got you now. Um, but actually, I think the man is realizing what, what Paul says in Romans 3, that everybody is under the power of sin, including us. Uh, Paul in Romans 3, he's quoting Psalm 14. He says this, he says, there is no one who does good. No, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one to seek God. In other words, he's saying there's no one who actually loves God perfectly. There's no one who actually loves their neighbor perfectly, including this man and also including us. All right? Don't be mad at me. I'm just reading scripture, I promise. Um, so this man, he knows he's fallen short. He, you know, maybe he starts to realize like, you know, I've, I've loved my family really, really well. Like if this, Jesus, if you could just make this whole loving your neighbor thing just about like my literal family that I share a house with, like I would be good. But he's suddenly starting to think, wait, what if neighbor means something different? So that's why he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to, in many ways, make himself appear taller so that he like meets that mark. It's kind of like if you remember um, when you were young, like uh, you had to go to, if you went to an amusement park, right? You wanted to ride the roller coaster, they would immediately like bring out a, a stick, right? To see like, are you tall enough to get on the roller coaster? Like that one hits home for me. I was a late bloomer. I wasn't tall enough until I was like 16. Um, and so they're trying to see like, are you tall enough to get on this roller coaster? And so in many ways, Jesus brought out this stick and the man suddenly realizes, oh no, I'm not tall enough. I need to justify myself. And so, but Jesus doesn't do that, right? He doesn't start to twist the scripture so that the man feels good, so that he thinks, oh, don't worry. You've loved God good enough or you've loved your neighbor good enough. What does Jesus do? He starts to tell a story. Uh, Jesus does this all the time, right? Like he tells many, many stories in scriptures. Have you ever wondered why Jesus tells so many stories? It's actually not, yeah, there's like, there's a spiritual reason, right? Like the parables had, had spiritual power and could teach spiritual lessons, but 
um, just psychologically and culturally, and this is still true for us today, stories are the best way that, that, people, that people learn. Uh, when somebody tells you a story, it has this way of sticking with you in a way that just like lessons and lectures and, and books um, can't do. And that comes from somebody who loves books, but somebody tells me a good story, like I'm gonna remember it 10 times better. I mean, there are still stories that my dad used to tell me when I was like seven, eight years old that I still remember to this day just because they were stories. Like I know one of the best ways, this is just gonna pass this one on to you because you need it too. One of the best ways to survive a tornado is to throw yourself in one of the deep, like if you're caught like out in the middle of a field, all right, I know many of you are often caught in the middle of a field when there's a tornado um, and you need to survive, you find the deepest ditch, like the steepest, it doesn't even have to be that deep, but it just needs to be steep and you throw yourself in that ditch. And that's how you survive a tornado. And I know that because my dad told me a story once about a little girl that he'd heard about was caught on a field, a tornado comes, she throws herself in the ditch and the tornado literally jumps the ditch. All right, so there you go. Like that's how stories work. Um, lessons about how to survive tornadoes will stick with you for decades um, because it's put in story form. If I'd have read that in a textbook, I would have forgotten it, all right? And so that's what, that's Jesus's approach to teaching and to ministry is to tell a story. And just a, a quick aside, like that's something that we get to use too. I know sometimes we get so much in our head about like how do we minister to people? How do we share the gospel to people? Use a story, use your story. If you've encountered Jesus, you have a story about a life that didn't know Jesus that then met him and is now different. Right, it's just a three-part uh, three story, before, met Jesus, after, okay? If you can tell that story, you can share the gospel. And so Jesus also tells the story, and this is to answer the man's question, who is my neighbor? So I know this is a story that most of us are familiar with, right? Um, so I don't necessarily wanna just retell the story um, because it often speaks for itself, but there are some key characters that I just want us to make sure that we understand. All right, so first we have uh, this man, right, that's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, right? So he's probably walking a very similar road to the one that Jesus is on now as he's heading towards Jerusalem. Um, and so this man obviously is, is Jewish, and he's going from Jerusalem, which they saw as like the, the most illustrious capital of the world, to, to Jericho. And so in many ways, he's journeying out into the wilderness, and he's attacked, and he's robbed, and he's literally left dying on the side of the street. Um, but then there's these people that come in, right? And these are the, the, the religious class, and these are people that we would expect uh, to see mercy from because these are the people whose occupation literally involve God, right? It's a priest and it's a Levite. But it says they both pass by on the other side of the road. All right, so there's many reasons uh, why this could be. Like, right, it could just be that they're bad people. It could be that, um, uh, that yeah, they, they didn't want to be stopped or they're just not compassionate. But there's a, probably also uh, a religious component that uh, if this man was literally left for dead, he probably looks like he's dead already, is dying, um, the religious people wouldn't have touched them, touched him because they would have become ceremonially unclean. And then they would have had to go through a bunch of purification rites and rituals in order to be clean again so they could go back to doing uh, their religious duties. All right, so they, they pass by on the other side, and so the man is still left for dead. And then a Samaritan comes. A Samaritan, this is a, a title that we hear a lot, especially in the Gospels, but the question is, what is a Samaritan? I think I had, I had thought like most of my life, uh, I knew there was a lot to Samaritans, but I kind of just always classified them as like, okay, they are some kind of like outcast group, right? Um, but it turns out they're actually more than that. Um, the Samaritans weren't just outcasts, they were the actual religious enemies of the Jews. Because uh, you see what had happened, remember in the Old Testament, uh, the Babylonians come in, they destroy Jerusalem, 
Uh, they capture all the Israelites and they send them out into exile. So all the Israelites, they get taken to, to Babylon where they live in exile. And that's where like the book of Daniel happens and, and like the book of Lamentations and all these things, right? And then after a while, um, the Babylonians are conquered and the people who conquer the Babylonians begin to send the Israelites back into their homeland, back towards Jerusalem. And so when the Israelites get back to Jerusalem, they start to reestablish their religious laws and traditions. And there was one group that didn't agree uh, with how the new traditions were being established. And this group broke off and was, went and lived in a different place called Samaria. And so in many ways, they were very similar to Jewish people. They believed in Yahweh. They believed in a lot of the Old Testament law, but they didn't believe that Jerusalem was where, uh, was where worship of Yahweh was meant to happen. They went and found another mountain and they said, it's on this mountain that this thing is gonna happen. So they weren't just like outcasts, right? Like it wasn't the same as like, uh, you know, like Christians and Muslims, so to speak, right? But it was more like they were like, uh, I would say it's it probably closer to like, like a different denomination that it broke off, but just imagine like you go to war with this denomination. So it wasn't really just like, oh, we've got some different beliefs. They started to actively fight and wage war against each other for hundreds of years, literally up until the point that Jesus is telling this story. So literally, if you go back into Luke 9, verse 51, Jesus had just encountered a Samaritan town on the way to Jerusalem, and what had happened? So they wouldn't let him pass through because they knew he was Jewish and they knew he was going to Jerusalem. And so you remember, this is this time where the disciples like asked Jesus if he would incinerate them, like call down fire from heaven and burn up the Samaritan. So this isn't a relationship that's gotten better over time, right? Like they still hate each other. And so the disciples ask if Jesus would incinerate him. And that shows that they either have deep faith in Jesus's power, or they have deep hatred for their enemies. And those are two different things, and that's a different sermon, and we're not gonna get into it. Um, but this is a real rivalry, uh, a real hatred that still exists today. But in this story, Jesus uses a Samaritan, uh, not even to show like as an example of how to help somebody in need. Like he's not saying you need to help Samaritans, you need to love your enemies, but he's actually using the enemy to show this is the one through whom a godly exchange of love and neighborliness is happening, right? And so what does this, this Samaritan do? He sees the man that had just been left for dead. He picks up the man, right, risking his own uh, ability to become unclean. He puts him on his donkey. He washes him with his oil, with his wine, right? And these are both costly things. He delivers him to safety. He makes sure he's taken care of. He even promises to return to check on him and pay for any debts that the man might have incurred and taking care of them. So Jesus is telling this story not, not as an example of someone who just performed a random act of kindness to somebody in need, but actually the Samaritan man, like I said, he wasn't performing a random act of kindness, but he was deeply and compassionately walking alongside somebody who had deep, deep needs, and he actually took these problems and they became his own problems. And he was doing everything that he can to help. I was, I was really thinking about that as, as I was preparing the sermon, that there is a difference between having mercy on somebody and walking compassionately with somebody than just a random act of kindness or a random good work. Like I remember I was thinking about this one time I was driving on the highway and, and this, uh, this man flagged me down and, and he had a flat tire. And so like I did what most people do. I stopped and like, you know, I had like a jack in my car and I helped him change his tire and, and I went on his way. Uh, sometimes we would look at that and be like, yeah, like, hey, I was a good Samaritan today. Like give me that gold star, I did it. Uh, but really, I mean, that was like a random act of kindness, right? If I was actually acting as a Samaritan, I probably would have uh, checked his fuel level and, and put some extra gas in his car. 
I would have uh, paid for a hotel because now it's late and he's stranded. He make sure I would have made sure his kids get through college, um, <laughs> right? Like I would have gone like deep. I would have been like, yes, your tire is flat, but I have good news for you today. Salvation has come to your household. No, I'm kidding, um, right? Like that's, that's Samaritan type love. Um, maybe a bit exaggerated, but you get the point. And so that's the, the picture that Jesus is painting. Not a random act of kindness, but a merciful, compassionate walking with not even walking, carrying somebody else, right? So Jesus tells this story and he finishes it and then he turns and he asks the man, now it's Jesus' turn to ask the question. He said, so who was the neighbor? Was it the priest? Nope. Was it the Levite? No. It was the other. It was the one that you wouldn't expect. And as the man puts it in verse 37 when he asked Jesus' question, he says, it was the one who showed him mercy. Right? Like he couldn't even bring himself to say it was the Samaritan. He's just like, it was that one who showed him mercy. So the question is why? Why does Jesus use this Samaritan? Uh, why does he point this man towards the Samaritan as an example of mercy? Was it because Samaritans were inherently and culturally more ethical and better than the Israelites? Uh, was he trying to say like to the Israelites, actually the Samaritans got it right, you need to be more like them? And the answer is no. Uh, but again, Jesus was doing something here that was um, far bigger than what people realizing. He wasn't saying like, hey, Samaritans are the, the epitome and the picture of what mercy and compassion looks like. Uh, but he was using this story to, again, do something that we see him doing throughout Luke, which was he was expanding the notion of the kingdom of God and who can be involved in it, right? And we see this all through the book of Luke, right? Jesus starts, he starts preaching in a synagogue, right? Like his ministry starts in a synagogue, but it's one of the last times you see it happening in a synagogue and it starts to go out of like the religious borders where people expected God to work and it's suddenly going into the homes of the sick. It's going into the, uh, to people like Roman centurions. It's, it's, it's demon-possessed people and, and the kingdom of God really, it's almost like a cup that had overflown and it starts to spread and go beyond where people were expecting even into the very world of the Samaritans. Again, this is a theme that we see throughout the book of Luke, that the kingdom of God is not confined to one ethnic group. It's not confined to the religious hierarchies that we set up, all right? It's not being advanced by these things. What's it being advanced by? We'll look back at verse 37. It's being advanced by mercy. The kingdom of God is being advanced by mercy. Again, not our tribe, not our group, not our people, not our church. The kingdom of God is dependent on mercy. On whose mercy? God's mercy. So there's two conclusions that I want us to take away from this. There's a, there's a bit of an ethical conclusion and there's a spiritual conclusion. I know sometimes we read the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan and we're quick to like overly spiritualize it, right? And that it's all about Jesus showing this man that his heart's not right and that he needs to rely on the grace of God. That's true. But there is like a very practical conclusion where Jesus says, go and do likewise, right? Like Jesus calls us to the same merciful and compassionate walking alongside of other people and saying, wanna be a good neighbor? This is what it looks like, all right? And we do need to have a reality check because I think we read the, the parable of the Good Samaritan and it's kind of like, yeah, it makes us feel kind of warm and fuzzy and like, that's really cool. But being a good neighbor, walking alongside people in the merciful way that, that God is merciful is very, very costly, right? And we see this in the story. Like, what did it cost the Samaritan to help this man? Well, it cost him time, right? Like, he literally had to stop his journey and take care of this man. It cost him his own oil and his own wine, which were very costly things, and it cost him his money, right? So it cost time, oil, wine, and money. 
Uh, in New York, you're lucky to get the time part out of people. And uh, I don't know if anybody needs oil, but, but yeah, like, <laughs> it's a very, very costly thing for them to walk alongside of other people. Um, but mercy and compassion is a costly thing to give. Like I said, random acts of kindness, those are quick. Those are easy. They don't cost you much. And like, honestly, New Yorkers, like, they're really good. With, you guys are really good with that. Like, I've only lived here five years, but I've seen so many cool random acts of kindness. Um, I mean, you know, when people come to New York from the outside, we're all, everybody's scared. Like, New Yorkers are going to be like the meanest people in the world. And I think, I think it was Tiffany who told me this once, or maybe she, she put it on Instagram, and I lose track of things that Tiffany actually told me versus things I get from her on Instagram. But it was like, New Yorkers are, um, they're not always polite, but they are very nice, right? Like, you will, you will stop and help a woman carry a stroller up the subway stairs, never say a word uh, to her. But like, it was like the, the, the nicest thing I had seen all day, you know? And I was like, wow, that's, that's amazing. Um, and so we're not, we're not talking about random acts of kindness like that, because at the end of the day, like I was going up those stairs anyways, right? Um, but actually walking with people with mercy is always going to cost more than we're ready to give. I asked him if I could share this story, and unfortunately he's not here, but he did say I could share it. But, but Matt Burgos once gave me a great example of this. If you don't know Matt Burgos, he's a member of our church and just one of the most positive, like encouraging, very energetic guys that you'll meet. Uh, and he approaches his faith that way too. And he told me once of this story uh, where they had a neighbor who was moving out, right? Young family, lots of kids, completely overwhelmed, and they needed to move, and they had just had an infant. And so Matt, um, trying to take his faith as serious as possible and be a good neighbor, offered like, hey, you guys go move. I'll watch your kids, including the infant. Um, and Carmen was, or Karma, Karma was busy, so he was on his own. Um, and he will tell you that that night was one of the worst nights of his life. Uh, he said the baby started screaming when they put it in his arms and didn't stop until they got back like three to four hours later. Um, he knew, you know, he knew in theory how to swaddle a baby, um, and he learned that it still didn't work. And so the baby screamed for hours and hours. Um, but Matt will tell you, like, at the end of the day, he's like, man, I was just trying to follow Jesus and what he said about being a good neighbor. And so we can follow Jesus into this, and, and it doesn't mean it's going to feel warm and fuzzy. It doesn't mean it's not going to cost us anything. In fact, it means the opposite. It's going to be just as hard and just as costly, um, but we have Jesus with us in the mix. So that's the practical conclusion, that at the end of the day, we are called to walk with our neighbors in this way. Uh, but there's also, um, there's also a bit of a, a spiritual conclusion here, and it just goes back to what uh, Bishop Matero was preaching on last week. If you guys remember, he, he said that Jesus is the hermeneutical key to understanding every story and all of Scripture, right? Jesus is the hermeneutical key to understanding all of Scripture and every story. And so the question is, where is Jesus in this story? If you go back into to church history, if you look at what the, the, church, the early church fathers believed, which the church fathers were just the leaders of, of early Christianity in the first two to 300 years of church history. So these are guys like St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, and, and these guys. Um, if you go and ask them about this story, they're gonna say that Jesus was found in the Samaritan, and that actually we are the man. And I, and I think this checks out, because remember, if we're, if we're reading Scripture through the lens of Jesus is the key to unlocking it. We are the man who are on our way to Jericho. We have wandered into the wilderness of the world. And many of us have been ravaged and destroyed and left for dead by sin, right? And we are laying on the side of the road. But when Jesus comes, what does he do? He doesn't pass us by. He stops and suddenly he 
pays a very costly price in order for us to get lifted out of the ditch and to be restored. And he doesn't just leave us in the hands of others. He promises he's going to come back and check on us. He's going to come back and receive us into himself. I think this is really important to realize that Jesus is actually, again, this, this story isn't about that Samaritans are really good and we should be like them. It's that Jesus is actually, um, the, Jesus is actually the quintessential display of mercy and that whenever we are showing others mercy, we are simply just extending the same mercy that we have already found in Jesus. So when Jesus says, go and show mercy, go and do likewise, he's saying, you go show mercy because you also have received mercy. We see this all throughout scripture. I'll leave us with Hosea 6.6 6, and then the, the band can come up and we're gonna close. But, but in Hosea 6.6, 6, God says this. He says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So church, we have been shown extreme mercy in the arms of Jesus. I know there's some of you here today that you, you still feel like that man. The, the, the point that you're at in your, your walk of faith is you are you're lying on the side of the road and this world has left you destroyed. And everybody that you've looked to for salvation, whether it's friends or family, maybe even your religious friends or your religious family, they've passed by on the other side. Um, but Jesus does not pass by. Jesus is ready to stop today and to, and to shoulder you on his back and to put you on his donkey and to take care of you. It's his mercy that raises us up and nobody else's. And it's this mercy that advances the kingdom of God. Church, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you for your mercy. Lord, we can only show mercy because we've been shown mercy, Lord, and, and oftentimes we fail. We fail to even do that well, Lord. But Lord, we know that at the end of the day that you're the one that holds it all together, that the story of your mercy is the one that everybody needs to find. So would you help us even as we walk in? Display the mercy that we've been shown by you to others. Father, I pray for everybody in this, in this audience, Lord, for those of us that have been walking with you for a while, God, would you, would you give us an eagerness to show mercy even when it's gonna cost us? Because we know, Lord, that when it empties us, Lord, we just get to rely on you and your reserves, Father. God, I pray for those that are in this audience that are still in the place of that man who are beaten and left for dead on the side of the road of life. God, whether it's sin or just the, the trials of the world that have left them empty and they're wondering, is anybody gonna stop by and help me? And Jesus, that you would just whisper in their ear, I'm here. I've got you and I'm with you. Father, I pray for your mercy on the Lord that they would experience it even this morning.